I really wanted to connect with other women who may share the experiences and the questions that I was that I was in the middle of. And so that's how I came up with the idea of Brown Girl Therapy. And that's hence the name Brown Girl Therapy. Um, I'm passionate about mental health and I really wanted to connect. I myself was craving the sense of community. Hi, and welcome to At the Table with Dr. Adnan Roberts. My guest today is Sahaj Kohli. She's the founder of Brown Girl Therapy, the first and largest mental health and wellness community organization for children of immigrants. In this work, Sahaj creates resources that promote bicultural identity exploration and the destigmatization of therapy in immigrant communities. Sahaj is also a second year's master's student at the George Washington University, where she studies clinical mental health counseling and works as a counseling intern. As a writer and speaker, Sahesh hopes to educate on decolonized and inclusive mental health care for underserved populations. With a seven-year career in journalism under her belt, her passion lies at the intersection of narrative storytelling and mental health advocacy. She's interested in the mechanics of community building and reflects a lot on how we can develop intersectional and inclusive care, workplaces, and relationships. Her work and words have been featured in HuffPost, Mental Health America, The Work, Self Magazine, Pop Sugar, Bust Magazine, Quartz India, and more. She sat on panels and has delivered workshops and keynotes at Amazon, the Los Angeles County Psychological Association, and College of William and Mary. Today, Sahaj and I really unpack what inspired her to start Brown Girl Therapy, how it fed not only a, move, a need in her own life, but created a movement for so many other women who have often felt underrepresented and excluded from spaces. We also unpack some practical tools on how we can all start these journeys and how we can have difficult conversations with people we truly love about our mental health journey and about their own experiences, their trauma, and how we can work through it together. We also talk a little bit about what we would bring to the table and what being at the table means to us. So I'm excited you've joined us today. And I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Sahaj and you check out at Brown Girl Therapy on Instagram for a little bit more inspiration, motivation, and education on mental health for children of immigrants. Thank you so much. This is At the Table with Dr. Elam Urabit. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I am a UN high-level commissioner on health, employment, and economic growth, one of 17 global UN sustainable development goal advocates. I am also a medical doctor and a women's rights champion and strategist. I have traveled the world and met people who are leaders in their own industries, and I've met people who have completely changed the game, from names that we know to names that we don't. There are people who have championed inclusive security more than anything else. So At The Table is really a collection of in-depth conversations and interviews with leaders in all industries. It's looking at how we create systems and structures and communities and selves that really represent what we need in the world today. Now, it's been called At The Table because I think the single most important thing is for us to create and cultivate spaces. And this one is mine, where I invite you to connect with and to learn from and to teach one another about the importance of inclusive leadership and making sure that when you are at any table, you are bringing somebody with you, an idea with you, a perspective with you that isn't already there. So thank you again for joining me. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening and for being here. And please let me know, what does being at the table mean to you? And who are you bringing with you? So Sahaj, I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you for taking the time to be here. How are you feeling today? Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Um, currently, I am feeling overwhelmed and I would also add privileged to that. So I'm kind of straddling between both of those feelings at the moment. Can you, okay, so tell me a little bit more about that. The overwhelmed, I feel like, you know, everyone around the table right now is like, yeah, no, that's 2020. <laughs> um, but, but why overwhelmed and why privileged? Yeah. So I think overwhelmed is just what you said. It's just a standard 2020 feeling. I think um, the privilege is something I've been sitting with for a while. Like, you know, I could unpack that in so many ways, but first and foremost, um, you know, Brown Girl Therapy has been thriving through this pandemic and it's a very disconnected feeling knowing that there's so much pain and hurt 
happening in the world, um, yet I have been able to create a space where people can connect and come together and really um, belong within a community and that there's so much privilege with that. And I feel so humbled um, being you know, a leader in this space and, and being able to hold space for these voices and these people at this time. So why did you, you know, like Brown Girl Therapy predates the pandemic, mm-hmm. this, this, this focus and, and this recognition that we need to have um, a different way to talk about mental health, particularly intergenerational and um, mental health for, for children of immigrants predates it. But why do you think it's become so powerful during the pandemic? And why did you start it? Where did you see the need for it? Yeah, so I will, I'll answer those in reverse and start at the beginning. And so I think I've been doing this work and by this work, I mean, mental health advocacy for most of my life, um, well over a decade. And so, you know, in some way, shape or form, even without being able to really identify it at those times, um, I have been working towards mental health advocacy and awareness. And so as a teenager, I was always convinced something was wrong with me because I responded to the world very differently and much more intensely than the rest of my family. Um, You know, I saw my first counselor when I was 18. I was in therapy for three years in my 20s. I've experienced trauma. Um, I've had to navigate all of these conversations with my immigrant parents, which added a lot more to my mental health um, struggles. And, And again, these are in ways that I wasn't able to identify at the time, but working in journalism for seven years and, and, you know, carrying people's identity-driven stories for years um, brought me closer to my own story. Um, I'm, I'm very passionate about the intersection of narrative storytelling and mental health. I really strongly believe that the way that we talk to ourselves and the stories we tell ourselves um, have a huge impact on the way that we live in our lives and our work in our relationships and we don't even realize it. Where are these stories coming from? Whose voices are actually in our head? Who's telling us to behave a certain way? Whose timelines are we actually on? Um, And last year I was kind of coming out of my own identity, personal identity crisis. And we got married last April and I was kind of grappling with my own personal identity, curiosities, crisis, whatever you wanna call it about what this meant for me, what this meant for who I was, how I identify, how I wanted to show up in my relationship, both with my partner, but also in my family, with other people. How is this gonna shape the course of my life and my future family for years and generations to come? And so in grappling with all of these really big questions, um, I really wanted to connect with other women who may share the experiences and the questions that I was that I was in the middle of. And so that's how I came up with the idea of Brown Girl Therapy. And that's hence the name Brown Girl Therapy. Um, I'm passionate about mental health and I really wanted to connect. I myself was craving the sense of community. And so when I started Brown Girl Therapy, it was right before I started graduate school. So now I'm in my second year studying to be a mental health counselor. Um, but when I started it, I, I wasn't you know, I didn't have this big vision. I, for me, it really was coming down to just wanting to meet other women like me. Um, but the more that I sat with my own experiences and decided that I didn't want to just regurgitate, um, you know, mental health content on social media, I don't want to reinvent the wheel. There's so many great platforms and so many great people doing Um, creating content and creating resources in different capacities. And so I was really intentional about what I wanted to put out there. And the more I sat with my story, the more I realized a lot of what I experienced and a lot of my rooted struggles and identity issues really are grounded in my identity as a child of immigrants. And just like that, as I leaned into that, the community grew so quickly. And I realized that this was such an underserved population. And yet we are the fastest, one of the fastest growing populations in the United States. Um, and so that's kind of how Brown Girl Therapy has evolved. It's only been 16 months. It's relatively new. Um, it's grown pretty big. And I would say over since March, it's, it's probably tripled in size. Um, why? I think I would say because people are craving community and connection now more than ever, um, especially adult children of immigrants who um, may come to their own identity development much later than our American counterparts. Um, I also think this time is triggering a lot of 
um, mindsets and learned coping behaviors and mechanisms that we may not really be aware of, but because of the pandemic and scarcity and struggle and mental health, we're all kind of facing all of these issues that are compounding on one, of, one another. And I think we just want to know that we're not alone. So I have two questions out of that, because I, I hear that completely and a lot of that resonates. But, but the first is, why do you think that it's been such an underserved population, given that it is one of the fastest growing um, and given that the conversation around mental health in general has become a lot more open and a lot more public. I remember, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we were not talking, you know, in my public school in Canada about mental health as openly as we do today. And, and, and we weren't as cognizant of the impact it had on every other facet of your life. So, so why do you think it's been such an underserved population? And then second to that, you said something that stuck out to me, which was that um, they come into kind of that identity a little later than their American counterparts. Can you explain that a little bit? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that mental health hasn't really been addressed and it's it's only now becoming this wild, wildly and widely talked about topic for a number of reasons. Um, you know, the most obvious and the one that I have been exploring and navigating as someone who is actually in the mental health field now is the fact that mental health is very um, Eurocentric and very colonial. And especially the way that we talk about it in this country, um, the Western ideal of mental health looks very different than what it might look like for um, Eastern communities, immigrant communities um, and communities of color. And so I think even just reconciling that is a really big a really big ask and a really big thing that we are navigating as communities and as a whole entity, both in the mental health field, but also personally in our own community. Um, and so I think that that was something that, you know, has really now 16 months into Brown Girl Therapy is really my, it's, it's my fire is, is representing this community that is so minoritized and underserved and underrepresented in the field. As for why mental health is widely talked about more so now than it ever has been in our community. Um, I would say that, you know, when I think about my immigrant parents, you know, my dad moved to this country with a pregnant wife and two kids um, and he prioritized physical and financial security because it's what he needed to do. It's what a lot of immigrants need to do. Um, he was in survival mode with little access to resources um, or anything else, really. I understand now that this hindered his capacity to explore or access emotional security. You know, when we think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the most basic level is housing security. It's all of your most basic needs, food. Um, and I don't think that my parents were taught and I don't think their parents were taught and I don't think my great grandparents were taught how to navigate beyond that in terms of emotional wellness, in terms of mental health, in terms of um, you know, really getting in touch with our learned behaviors, patterns, identity. These are all things that are privileged in our community um, or considered to be privileges because some, some people and generations before, before us never made it to that point. And so I think that we are now as a whole reconciling with the fact that we have generations who are actually and actively self-actualizing and, and pursuing emotional wellness and emotional security while being in family systems and units where that is so misunderstood and so um, not addressed. And so, you know, that's where we're having all of these really difficult conversations. We're trying to reconcile with who we are versus where we come from. What does that look like? And so it raises a lot of these big questions, but I think it's really awesome because like you said, there are so many more platforms. There are so many, there is so much more content and resources now available at our fingertips. And it, it makes me so happy to know that like we are setting ourselves up and we are setting the generations after us up for better mental health overall. So in your, in your work now, and, and, and you speak about really kind of going from that journalist, you know, mindset and, and really kind of focusing on people's stories. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting when you said that thing about the stories we tell ourselves, my husband always, when I tell him I hate exercise, I'm like, you should ask anybody. I never ask, you know, I'm, I hate running. It's not exercise. I really hate running. But like, it's so boring. And I just don't love it. Ever since I was a kid, I haven't loved it. You should ask anyone. And he'll be like, the stories you tell yourself are so limiting um, because you're so unwilling to try new things. And, 
And I wonder, having gone from journalism, where it really is about trying to be objective and trying to tell a story with the facts, to something like therapy, where it's so subjective, where everything is about, you know, your interpretation of an event and how that's impacted you and what it's made you feel about yourself and how you've translated that to to the larger picture of your life and, and the feelings that you have from that. What's been the biggest challenge and also what's been the biggest opportunity what's something that, that you've been able to carry with you from journalism and, and your past work there that other people in this space don't necessarily have you know I really think it's as simple as just an intense and innate curiosity about other people I think you know especially in today's um state of the world it gets it's really easy for us to for us as individuals to always be approaching conversations and interactions with other people even our own loved ones um from a from a from a point of defensiveness from a point of wanting to be heard from a point of of wanting to be seen and i think a lot of my work as a journalist um, was I'm very, very grateful for my experience over the seven years because it wasn't I wasn't a typical journalist in the way that people think about journalism. And so I wasn't a reporter. I actually was a senior editor of identity driven stories. And so I actually held space and worked very closely with mostly writers of color to share their their identity driven stories. So these were stories from ranging from anything from religion to um, sexuality to race to you know anything that that really kind of hits home for someone's identity struggle and so doing that work and holding that space and asking the really hard questions so when someone shares their story with you you know there's you have to find this fine line between taking the, it at face value because people are the experts of their own lives but also just asking questions asking challenging them in ways that are really gentle but really um you know, we call them gentle confrontation in, in, in mental health. It's just a matter of like, but how has that been serving you? What does that look like? Explain it to me when you're coming from a place of not of really not being able to, to know what someone's lived experience is. You have to ask all of the questions to get more details. And a lot of the times just asking those questions and having those, you know, doing those gentle confrontations, you'll be able to get someone to really think about their own stories from a different perspective. It's just like moving the lens a little bit and being like, oh, I've never looked at it from that side. I've never considered it from that side. Um, and that's the most, I mean, that's where all the opportunity is for growth and for healing and for identifying what we're going through and naming it. Um, that is really where the opportunity is. So opening up this space for, for so many people, for thousands of people, um, you know, you had mentioned how it's kind of been almost therapeutic for you in many ways, right? It's been, you, it was you looking for this sense of community um, and really trying to find it. And, and now you've mentioned kind of holding space for people. What do you mean by holding space? How, how do we hold space for one another? What, what does that actually entail? And do you ever feel like, you know, the ability to really support and be there for people is is um i don't want to say lessened because i you know I, I don't i don't mean it that way but is is different because it's a virtual platform you know it is it's an instagram page where you are sharing all of these incredible um this incredible information which is so hyper targeted for this group that often is not spoken about or referenced or even thought of i would say in in most mental health education but but do you do you feel like okay wait i'm putting this information out there i'm building this community does it fulfill that sense of community for you? Is there that sense of reciprocation? Yeah, those are really great questions. Um, in terms of holding space, I mean, the, the big thing that really comes to mind for me is just letting people show up as they are. So not having the expectation of how people need to show up in certain spaces or in conversations, you know, um, not having, you know, and not, not, not placing those expectations on those people through the conversation and, and through the interactions in these spaces. And so a lot of holding space for me really is just letting people show up as they are. We are all at different points in our journey. We all come from different environments and dynamics. Yes, there is. But what does that mean? Like if we're trying to practice that in our own lives, how do we, how do we, how do we ensure that we're, we're opening the space for people to show up as they are? 
especially if everyone is individually grappling with a lot of this. Do, do you know what I, yeah, does definitely. my question make sense? Yeah, it does. And I, I mean, I'm sitting with that all the time because as we struggle individually, it becomes really hard to hold that space for other people. And so it's having, it's just being honest about it, being honest about where you are, honest about what your capacity is, um, letting other people be honest in those interactions. Um, I think, I mean, that's a very good question. I don't know if I have the answer um, from my own experience that it looks a lot like really um, honest and direct communication about where we are and how we can interact with one another, right? Holding space doesn't necessarily mean that you are um, a safe space, right? We can't, we don't get to dictate when other people feel comfortable with us. They, we can do our part to be, you know, inclusive and, and kind and compassionate and listen and do all of these things. But in reality, when we interact with people, we get to decide how comfortable we are with opening up. So holding space is just doing our part as individuals to A, be honest with ourselves, compassion, compassionate with ourselves about what we are struggling with, how much capacity we have, but then also allowing for that compassion and that honesty on the other side. So, okay, how do we, because I think often for, for many people practicing that self-compassion and, and to be quite frank, that self-honesty is, is usually the most difficult thing. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it, it always feels, yeah. I think, a lot easier to um, practice that with other people. And, and there's a, a very kind of, um, especially when you have some of that negative self-talk, when someone says like, speak to yourself like you would to another person, would you ever speak to them like that? Would you ever say that out loud? And you realize that oftentimes you wouldn't, right? So it's difficult to practice that that self-compassion. I wonder if you can give us some some practical tools as we're all kind of grappling with the different realities of, okay, where, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, there's a lot more, I think, um, loneliness in a sense of we need community for many of us, um, you know, and many people around the world, they're back with family that they may not have lived with for a very long time. And so they're, you know, managing those new relationships or those kind of old relationships with new terms and, um, and, and this reality that sometimes a sense of individual independence, but also a sense of community responsibility mm -hmm. that you have, um, you know, in, in, in many cultures around the world, um, tends, tends to at time be it, be it conflict with one another. And so how do we practically throughout our day, hold that space, but also create boundaries especially with people we love and especially with people who have sacrificed so much for us? Yeah. Um, these are questions that I am still learning to explore, honestly. But when I have these conversations with members, uh, with people who are a part of Brown Girl Therapy, um, a lot of the conversations are really around practicing forgiveness, right? So um, there are things that are in our control and things that are not in our control. So when it comes to when I think about my, my story personally, and I think about my experience with my immigrant parents, I've had to relinquish a sense of, of control, which has brought grief for myself of like the childhood I didn't have or the childhood I did have, the relationship I do or I don't have with my parents. Um, and it's just allowing yourself to, to move through those feelings, to have the feelings, to really sit with those feelings. If you have to schedule time in your day, 20 minutes, you know, there's a thing called worry time, like schedule the time to feel those feelings, then let it. Cause it's, if you don't let yourself process through or actually have the feelings, they're going to sit in your body. They're going to fester inside. And that is a known thing. Like it's, it's going to manifest itself in some other way in, in some capacity at some point. And so, um, you know, I, I really do encourage people to, to sit with those feelings, um, practice gratitude, you know, gratitude on a granular level. I'm not talking about, it doesn't need to be these big things and you need to have something huge to be thankful for every day or every week, but like on a granular level, we all have things that we can be grateful for. So practice gratitude. Gratitude is known to help boost our mental health, to help ground us into our own realities. Um, and when it comes to boundary setting, I mean, I definitely really feel that a lot of people in the community are back at home, are trying to figure out how to um, explore their own growth and healing while still maintaining those relationships with people who might hold them back or who are giving that, who have given them so much, but aren't necessarily healthy um, and don't, are not doing the work themselves. And that's really hard, right? So there's this idea that as child of immigrants or as children and generally we may outgrow our parents and what that means is not outgrow them as in like physically you don't have a relationship with them anymore um, 
but I mean, outgrow emotionally. I mean, I know my parents have now are like, you are so much better off than we ever were. And that's what we want for our kids. And it's, it's incredible. And I love them. And I'm so grateful. But it's also incredibly hard to know that like, I have emotionally or mentally outgrown them in some ways. So, so I have a question for you there, because this is more my, now my personal curiosity. Yeah. Is that unique to children of immigrants? Because now we see almost this regression across the board um, in, in North America in particular, but Europe as well, where, and, and, you know, in the United States where uh, for the first time, you know, the children are dying sooner than their parents. They are less likely to make as much. They're less likely um, to have as many job prospects. They have an overall very um, compared to their parents and, and those born kind of in the 60s, 70s, et cetera, they have a, a less positive um, lifetime prospect. And apparently that's been creating this surge in mental health crises among, among non-immigrant communities. So I wonder, is this unique to immigrant? Like this, this kind of, um, this disconnect of generations, right? This, this idea that, that there were fundamentally different priorities or different opportunities or different advantages. Is, is that unique or, or, is, or is the children of immigrant experience unique in a different way? That's a really good question. Um, I think, you know, in general, in the West, I mean, we are all a part of this bigger system and these systemic issues that are causing people to um, you know, have less security to, to have to retire later, to die younger. There are, there are different things that are manifesting that are much bigger than just the relationships that we have in our family systems. Um, I would say that for children of immigrants, because we are socialized in environments and have access to resources that aren't, ne- that weren't and aren't necessarily available in other parts of the world, Um, the emotional and mental outgrowing of our parents, I would say is probably unique in in my opinion, Um, because I do think, and, and, you know, I, I, I don't want to generalize in that way. And I, I can't say for sure one or the other, I don't think it's a binary situation. Um, But from what I'm seeing from built from talking to people in the community and, you know, building Brown Girl Therapy and having these conversations on a daily level, it is the struggle of like, well, now I have all these opportunities and resources that my parents didn't have. They don't understand it. How do I manage that relationship? How do I, that's the biggest thing. How do I keep and maintain this relationship with my parents who don't understand the choices I'm making or why I'm living the life the life I'm living, even though I'm happier than they ever were or have been or are going to be? And that is the like million dollar question that we are all trying to navigate. I completely hear you on that, Sahaj. And I think one question that I've kind of had at the top of mind, especially given that Brown Girl Therapy has been founded by, created for, um, you know, women who, you know, children of immigrants, women of color, et cetera, is the entire world is having pretty vocal conversations now about masculinity and about how we raise young boys and men and about what we teach young boys and men about being men and about being partners and members of a community and leaders and and, and we're seeing a lot of that manifest, uh, to be quite honest, uh, with Shannon Watts, who is, who is the founder of Moms Demand Action for, for Gun Sense, uh, manifest in, in somewhat negative ways at times, right? In violent ways at times. And the, you know, children of immigrants are, are not unique at all in that. I think it's, it's kind of a, an international reality, a global reality, um, that the way that we speak speak to, to men and raise men is fundamentally different than the way we speak to and raise girls and our expectations for them, not just in, you know, in, in leadership and in life, but even when it comes to tackling mental health and, and really coming to terms with that, that idea of creating space, not only for others, but for themselves. And so when you started Brown Girl Therapy, was the intention for it to be, to explore that, that very different dynamic um, or, or was the focus to actually stay away from that and say, no, this is just particularly for and only for uh, women of color? I really appreciate this question because it is actually something that I have been sitting with for the last few months. Um, so when I started Brown Girl Therapy, just by the nature of the name and my own personal intention with what I was looking to create, um, it did. it was born out of this idea of being a community for South Asian women and and so specifically South Asian women because I identify as South Asian I was looking for that community 
as it's evolved over the months um, and became something that kind of grew into something that all children of immigrants are relating to and resonating with, um, I have started to sit with the idea of how can I be more inclusive for men? And so I know a lot of that. I mean, my goals for Brown Girl Therapy are a lot bigger than what it is right now. And so I know a lot of my future work will be in that work, but I do think it's incredibly important. I think, you know, the systems that oppress women are also hurting men in general. And that's like period and stop. That's the sentence. And I think, you know, the way that we talk about masculinity, the gender norms, even in our immigrant communities and Eastern cultures, and, and this, you know, I'm speaking specifically to these communities because that's the work I do, but this is worldwide in every community. Um, it's, it's really harmful to men. I mean, men, um, have their own unique mental health struggles, right? They, there's toxic masculinity. They um, are more likely to deal with certain mental illnesses. They are, you know, single dads are less likely to get custody of their kids. Like there are things that are hurting men in ways that we don't really think about it or talk about it. Um, and so as I'm building out and gr continuing to go grow Brown Girl Therapy, I do think there's gonna come a point where A, I rebrand, um, just to change the name. So that is, it's already more inclusive and B that I figure out a way to add people to the team who um, can do this work. I think I could do this work, but I also know that I'm one person. And the one thing that I've learned from building this out is that representation is so lacking that it's just, it's impossible for one person to be everything to everyone in the community. So right now that's where I am. I'm at the intersection of trying to navigate how to continue to build what I'm building while learning and figuring out ways to grow it, to be more inclusive and to really dive into these struggles that men face. Because I, I, I'm, here, I'm with you, I agree. Men, men have unique mental health struggles and I don't want them to be left behind in this conversation. Well, and I, I do wonder, and so this is me kind of, um, this isn't really a, a question. It's more of my own mental gymnastics as you say that. I also wonder if that would dilute the power of brown girl therapy, right? Because I think what makes it so powerful to me um, is that it is this place where we can go and have, where I can go and read about very specific conversations for children of immigrants, um, particularly for women. And I think one of the things that I've always found a little bit perplexing uh, for mental therapy as a whole. And, and, you know, I remember the first therapist I saw was somebody who did not identify with my, my background at all. Mm -hmm. um, and I was saying a few things about my childhood and he was like, oh no, 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 you need to, you need to never speak to those people again. And I was like, that's not how it works. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's actually not how that plays out in, in my life. Right. And, um, and it was a very, I think it was like a simple story about how my brother tickled me or something until I was crying or, and he was like, oh no, that's not, you know, you need to set stronger boundaries. And I was like, first I was six. Mm -hmm. um, but, but also that's, I think there's significant cultural differences that come into play when you're finding your therapist. But one thing that I've noticed that I, that I don't think exists anywhere is how we can talk about the different how we can talk about those differences in our lives. And what I mean by that is, I think it's so incredibly important for men, particularly um, particularly men who have been often excluded and who aren't part of kind of that, that general public narrative to have spaces where they can go and get and find support and find education on mental health. Do not get me wrong, I think that is so critical and so important. I also think it's important for women who, who come from those same spaces and same communities to be able to have mental health support that is not judgmental about the different gender dynamics mm -hmm. in their life. Yeah. I, and I think that's something that's so missing across the board. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm having, sorry, I, I am having visceral reactions to everything you're saying. Like a, the, the therapist thing, I am with you on that. It's, it's remarkable to me how, little a lot of therapists understand about culturally appropriate and responsive um, techniques, interventions, conversations, stories, cultural norms, all of the above. Um, it's something that that floors me every day in the work that I'm doing just by becoming a mental health therapist in this field. Um, I too had a therapist who um, didn't understand when I 
when my parents were coming to visit me in New York and expected me to stay with them at the hotel. And she was just like, that is so wildly inappropriate. And I was like, no, it's actually not in my culture. Like the, those kinds of boundaries don't exist. And it also isn't, it's not a weird thing to me. And just the fact that I had to explain that was so problematic because we looked at therapists to A, be really non-judgmental. And, and those kinds of, you know, smaller microaggressions are why people of color overall don't go to therapy and don't stay in therapy because they have really bad experiences. Um, and to your other note about not wanting to dilute brown girl therapy, I, yes, that's why I, I haven't, I mean, that's exactly where my head is, is like, how can I grow this? I think if anything, there would be a counterpart, you know, like a, for a lack of better words, a brown boy therapy, yeah. but not brown boy therapy. Like there would be a counterpart <laughs> that existed all on its own right. Um, underneath, you know, whether I do it or someone else does it, or I can encourage someone else to do it, or I can help someone else do it. I think it needs to exist because I think you're right. I, through Brown Girl Therapy, host um, a few events. I've started to host more and more because as we talked about earlier, I want to take these communities, I want to take the community offline into real spaces where we can actually have conversations. And so as I've started to build out more events, I've realized that men are starting to join these conversations. And these are intimate discussion events with maybe 12, 13 people in the community, including me. And so it's been really interesting to see what those dynamics are, but actually it's been, I thought it would be problematic that women wouldn't feel comfortable, that the men wouldn't be comfortable, that there would be some kind of like, I would need to separate them in some way, just thinking about the different experiences we have. But if anything right now, it's actually been really amazing to see the way these conversations have played out and how much people are listening to each other, um, taking responsibility in, in, in their own ways for certain assumptions and perceptions and misunderstandings about things. And I really do think there's value in that. So I'm navigating what that looks like. So I'm not diluting the spaces, but also allowing for these conversations, these really incredible, vulnerable conversations to happen. And so Sahaj, you've, you've re- we've kind of delved into your own personal journey, creating Brown Girl Therapy and why it's been so critical and the community that's really mobilized around it, especially during the pandemic. And I think one of the questions that's always been at the top of my mind is this disconnect, this generational disconnect um, uh, on this idea of self-care, what that really means, but even beyond that on on our inherent value, if that makes sense. This idea that for a lot of our parents, you know, education and hard work and all of that was actually how you showed love and value and commitment to your family because it bettered life for them. Whereas I see a lot of my friends now who are who are wrestling with that, who their whole lives have been told, okay, you have to work, you have to achieve, you have to be of value, but are finding it very difficult to find you know, personal value in themselves and are now looking at like, okay, how do I create that? So have you noticed that disconnect? And if so, how do we begin to bridge it in our generation without, you know, with, with realizing and appreciating why our parents approached it that way, but, but recognizing that maybe it's not sustainable for us? Yeah, I've definitely noticed that disconnect. And I think, you know, you summed it up really well. Um, I think a lot of our our behaviors, even you know, achievement behaviors, productivity, are um, where we place our value and our worthiness. Um, it all is rooted in something, right? So it's either rooted in cultural or patriarchal or you know, larger systems that we have all been raised in. Um, on a personal level, it can be rooted in your own childhood and the ways that you were given love, and so. Um, you know, I know that there are a lot of people who are perfectionists or people pleasers. And a lot of that is rooted in like, that was a learned behavior from wanting, wanting love or needing, like, that's how they received what they needed from another person, whether it was their caregiver or their boss or someone superior or an older sister or whatever it was. I, I think that we, we like, we internalize all of these things. We internalize, oh, well, this felt good when I was younger. And so I'm, I've now have become a perfectionist over the years. And I think in our cultures, um, there is value and, and we are rewarded by the milestones that we reach, that we are, and there are these imposed timelines that are placed on us, especially as women in our community 
of what is expected of us. And if you don't reach it, then you have quote unquote failed. You have, you know, you will not be happy. You will not be accepted. You will not be valued. Um, and it is really, really disheartening to see because that is a lot of the mental health struggles I see on Brown Girl Therapy and the conversations I have with the community, that's where a lot of them are rooted. They're rooted in this idea that to be valued as a human being, to be valued in certain relationships, you have to be productive, you have to be of service, um, and you have to be of use to someone else. And so that inherently then tells us we have to put ourselves second, that we what is self-care? You know, what, what even is the idea of self-care if I am not doing or giving to someone else or to something greater than me? And so that is something that is, you know, a reckoning that has happened in the younger generations, I think is like relearning what self-care is, but also not in the way that we're taught it in, you know, these in, in wellness that has been commoditized in um, Western world. I'm talking about self-care and self-soothing and the real the real granular terms. So as a child of immigrants, self-care might look different for you. It might actually be having to um, keep secrets from your parents. It might be finding the agency that you have within the systems you live in, whether that's being able to go to your room and close a door. Like these might be very basic modes of self-care, lying about having a work meeting so you can see a friend, like because we're taught that family is greater than friendships. Like there are different ways that we are trying to find ways to take care of ourselves that looks very different from just taking a bubble bath or doing a face mask or self-soothing or distracting, watching Netflix, all of these things. Like I think self-care looks different for different people in different communities. And so knowing what we know about the ways that we've been taught about our value, productivity, achievement, knowing the world that we live in today and how hard things are, everything is is disconnected from each other. It's hard to be productive right now. So then that's a negative feedback loop of, you know, someone feeling bad about themselves because they are struggling to be productive because the state of the world, and then because they're not productive, they are not, they don't feel like they're of value and then they don't know how to take care of themselves. So it really is just trying to find a way to penetrate that feedback loop to ground yourself and to find a way to feel okay in these moments. So Sahaj, for somebody who, you know, isn't really sure where to start, is beginning to grapple with these questions, is really finding it difficult to cope, um, you know, particularly throughout this pandemic in this kind of like limbo uh, period we have now, but okay, so are we going to be going to work soon? Is there going to be a vaccine soon? Um, am I going to be able to hug friends soon, right? This reality that a lot of the the social crutches that, that we traditionally have and the, the productivity, the ideals around productivity are kind of gone. Where do they start? Like, where do they start to unpack this? And especially, and I'll caveat this by saying, especially if they don't have the financial means um, or, or the ability to reach out to a trained mental health professional to walk them through this, mm-hmm. where, can, where can anybody just begin to start asking these questions? Yeah, I think, you know, for anyone who is starting to ask these questions, they're already starting the process of taking care of their mental health. Um, I really do believe I've said this before, and I'll say it again, that the first step to taking care of ourselves is being able to really identify and name what we're experiencing and what we're feeling. That is an incredibly hard. And are there, go ahead. Are there questions that you think people should be asking themselves? Like if, if anyone right now is listening and they're like, wait a second, I don't know where I sit in this conversation. Um, what can we be asking ourselves to help us identify those, those feelings and those needs? You know, I think a lot of the questions we ask should stem from the feelings that we're feeling. So if you are feeling unpleasant feelings about something or, you know, that we all have things that we know we don't handle well or that we don't that, that don't make us feel good. I think in those moments, that's when you ask the questions of like, what is happening? Where is this rooted? Whose voice is it? How does this serve me? How has this served me in the past? You know, whether it's like self-sabotaging behaviors, perfectionism, procrastination, all of these things, I think it's important to really, um, in order to identify and be able to name, it's to be able to really look at it from all corners of it. So like, how has it served me? How is it not serving me? You know, how can I change this? What are ways that like this doesn't make me feel good anymore? And it used to like, there are so many questions like that, that we can just be feeding ourselves to really 
take an inventory on what it is that we're experiencing. Um, and I, 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 you know, the biggest problem with the mental health field is that it is a part of a, a bigger capitalist system. And so it is incredibly hard. People don't always have the finances or the insurance or the access. And then that's the biggest barrier, especially for communities of color to access um, mental health care. And then the next biggest barrier is to actually find professionals who can, who are able to serve the community, who speak the languages, who look like them. I mean, the biggest thing to come out of Brown Girl Therapy for me is that, that I'm reminded of day in and day out is that it's really, really hard to think that you deserve quality care when the care doesn't look like you, doesn't sound like you, and doesn't speak your language, whether literally or figuratively. And so that is the that is what I'm seeing with Brown Girl Therapy and a lot of other platforms and social media spaces. When social media is used responsibly and appropriately, it can be such a huge, a huge benefit and a huge resource for people. And so if you are asking certain questions, whether it's big questions, small questions, I guarantee you someone else is asking the same questions. And if you are looking for those people, social media is a really, really good resource. Google it, Facebook, you know, Facebook groups, Instagram communities like Brown Girl Therapy, like there are tons of them. Ask people who you trust, um, you know, hey, I'm struggling with this. Have you struggled with this? How are you coping with it? Or hey, have you like come across anything on Instagram that, you know, that might be related to this thing that I'm struggling with. I think that that's the one good thing about social media when used appropriately is that we can really um, access different resources from all over the world and, and have it in one space to help us. And so that's essentially free. Um, and I think it's a really good place to meet other people who are asking the same questions as you, but also to just hear the perspectives of people who might be getting through it. You know, the one thing with with grounding ourselves in our own identities and in our own resilience is like seeing other people who have done it. So like having people to look to, having mentors, having people to look up to, having stories to watch, books to read. There are, are different ways that we can access those um, questions and the answers to those questions from other people that don't require us to go see a mental health professional. Mm -hmm. So Sahaj, what for you has been, like, where have you, because it, it takes courage to go from an established career in journalism to saying, okay, I'm going to create this space, I'm going to create this community, and I'm going to dedicate myself full time to this community. And so where have you, has that been a difficult transition, particularly at this time where everybody is feeling a bit more anxiety than usual? Or, or, or was it easy to find that courage? Was, were you so sure that, okay, I need this, this community needs this? That, that it was almost a, a natural next step rather than a risk? I would say the latter. I think it, it does scare me still to this day. I think um, leaving a safe and stable and reputable career um, in the midst of a pandemic is a privilege. And it was one that I really grappled with for a long time because it was like, am I making a mistake? Is this a stupid choice? is this okay? What should I do? You know, I had to really um, get my own support around the decision I wanted to make before I made it. And now that I'm on the other side, a few months later, you know, doing this full time, um, I absolutely am so inspired by the people I meet, the community I'm building. Like, this is not just a me job, right? Like I, this wouldn't exist without the people who are making up the community. And so in some ways, you know, I did this for the community, but I did this for myself because it, it's just been, it's been a mutual relationship all the way. And the courage has just come naturally now where it's like, I'm hitting the ground running. This is what I want to do. This, these are the people I want to give a voice to. This is an underserved, historically excluded population that deserves to be represented. I'm in the field. Like I, I'm ready. I'm ready to like make these spaces to like carve out the space for this community. And so um, I have never really used the word courage to describe the work I do or how I show up in my work, but I really appreciate that. And I think, you know, there is courage, but there's also just not letting myself talk myself out of doing the work, if that makes sense. 
Oh, I see. I define that as courage. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think it is, I think it's remarkably courageous to um, take on, and you had mentioned privilege at the top of, of the interview. I think it's also responsibility, right? And, and you've taken on this responsibility of a collective community that is a minority within a minority within a minority, mm-hmm. right? And so the, the layers and the nuance of challenge are so different and so varied. Um, and there are the realities of being able to navigate our own um, cultures that we were born and raised in, as well as this dominant culture that does not necessarily see us as equal. And, and you know, for a lot of us as women navigating the reality of that with, with gender norms and with patriarchy. And so from every single angle, and I always joke around with, with um, friends in this space about how sometimes I always felt like culturally being a, being a Muslim women's rights activist kind of felt like being between a rock and a hard place mm-hmm. because from dominant culture, I was being told like, well, you can't be Muslim and a feminist. That's just not doable. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of challenge there. But then from my own culture, it was like, okay, hey, well, you can't say anything negative about us because then you're giving them more fire. And I'd be like, okay, hey, but then don't do anything negative. Right. Like there's, there's this kind of, and, and always being, being, um, you know, always, always finding that it, it was very difficult to, to find a community of support or even just a community that wasn't vocally against. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, I do think it's courageous to create spaces like this. I, I think it tells young women, particularly women who, ha- who, are, who are part of um, cultures that often don't see themselves as, as being valued and, and being worth care and being worth support and and that their mental health does trump all of those other superficial qualities or superficial achievements um that that both cultures have have often told us we should have or we should aspire to so so i think it's incredibly courageous and i think it's it's and i'm grateful for it i know there's so many other young women I hope who, who are grateful for it and who find courage from it and who find a sense of community from it and see representation in it um, that inspires them to go on and, and, and not only take care of themselves, but go on and do bigger and greater and, and more incredible things for themselves and for whatever communities they end up um, identifying with and, and, and feeling seen and, and heard by. Sahaj, my, my next question for you really centers on, um, it's one that I ask every guest, but, but it's, what does being at the table mean to you? you know, I know you've created Brown Girl Therapy and it's really this, a table of your own making um, where you're saying, okay, this is the agenda. This is what's important. Let's get it covered. What does it mean to you to be at the table? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, being at the table carries so many mixed feelings for me. Just, just that uh, sentiment of like being at the table um, it's associated for me, it has been associated with assimilation. You know, I've worked hard, I've done hard things. I have failed and gotten back up. Um, and when I look back at some of my personal struggles, I have to wonder, and I've wondered, you know, would it have been easier if I wasn't trying to mold myself to reach a table that wasn't made for me, that wasn't inclusive or intersectional. Um, I think being at the table, now means doing the work in these spaces. And like you said, you know, creating our own tables or creating the whole house and the whole neighborhood for people, right? Because even the idea of a table for me feels limiting. It feels like there's only a set number of seats available for people. And so I think, you know, it's been a journey for me. If I'm being honest with you, there's a lot of personal um, work that I'm still navigating to kind of unlearn the assimilation and the acculturation struggles and and behaviors and mindsets that I have internalized and developed over the years um, to kind of understand what the table even looks like and who I want sitting at the table and who I want in the house and who I want to surround myself with. And it doesn't look the same way as I thought it was when I was younger and thought, you know, what's when I thought about what success was or what being at the table meant for me, it doesn't look the same anymore. And so I think being at the table now is really, it's, it's having one, you know, half of you sitting and the other half of you looking back and lifting other people up, you know, creating the materials to build your own tables in, in all of this because our communities deserve it. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think it's so incredibly important for us to be able to create spaces and I think conversations that are, you know, architected by and centered around 
people who often aren't, uh, you know, you know, even invited to sit at a table and that, that we're building our own spaces and really ensuring those voices are amplified and, and that agency is, is seen and appreciated. Now, Sahaj, when you're at the table, is there any particular, and it can be an idea, it can be a book, it can be a person, it can be a song, it can be anything that resonates with you that you would like to bring and share with this community around this table? It can be a person, <laughs> it can be anything. <laughs> oh, that's a, I feel like that question, that the answer to that question will change depending on my mood and state of mind, honestly. Um, that's a very fair, no, that's a very fair, I've, I've noticed that about myself. Like sometimes when, when I've asked that, somebody will be like, oh, you know, I'd love to bring this book. And the same person a couple of days later would be like, I really would just bring like a really good meal. I feel like everybody could use a good, oh, warm, I love like, that. home-cooked meal. I love that. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, and I, so I, did, I definitely think the place you're in is going to change and shape your answer. And it doesn't, you know, the, the answers are never static. The, every answer you have today could change tomorrow. It just means, you know, you're in a different place where you've grown. Definitely. So asking in this moment what you would bring to the table. Well, it's so interesting because I'm actually um, recording this at my parents' house. And so I haven't been home in a while. And so for me, you know, being at the table and, and sitting around the table right now really is like a childhood. I'm, I'm, I'm taken back. I'm, I'm taken back to my childhood. And so um, a lot of the work I do at Brown Girl Therapy is, is trying to bridge the gap between children of immigrants and their immigrant parents. So the kinds of conversations that we have to initiate, but can be so fruitful and beautiful to have with our immigrant parents. And so right now, when I think about sitting at the table, which is probably not how you asked it, I would just want to have my parents with me, um, specifically my dad, who was a man of few words and just have candid conversations with him and maybe other children of immigrants and their parents about our experiences and the disconnects and the generational differences. Um, and I think that that would just be such a beautiful, beautiful conversation over a really delicious meal. Oh yeah. And how do you think, so it brings me to a question that, that I, I think has always kind of been at the top of my mind. Um, and, and then I, I promise I will let you go, but how do we start those conversations with our parents or how do we start those conversations with loved ones? Um, you know, you said I would, I would invite my dad and he's a man of a few words. I think so many of us relate to that when it comes to our, our parents or our extended family. How do you start having those conversations with them? You know, I think we make it bigger than it really is. I really think to connect with our loved ones and people who we may not be on the same page with, it really is just being, it goes back to what we were talking about, being curious and asking them questions about themselves. Um, when I've been able to take myself out of the situation and just be curious about my dad and his immigration journey and what his relationship was like with his parents or his grandparents who I never met or what it was like for my family, you know, during the partition, like all of these things that I have not asked about or talked about because Immigrant parents tend to not look back and not to drudge up the past and bring up things from the past. And so I have found just being in, you know, intensely curious about my dad's life has just started so many incredible conversations for us. No, I think that's, um, I think that's true for, for most of us, right? Being asked about and, and being um, almost given permission to look at kind of what you've, what you've gone through and what you've lived through and, and have that curiosity come from somebody else is always welcoming. And how do we ensure that, you know, one of the things I always worry about when I do ask my parents about this is, um, how do I ensure that I'm not making them relive a lot of experiences they don't want to? And, 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 you know, a lot of, a lot of things they might not necessarily be prepared to share a lot of trauma that they may have gone through. So how do we navigate that? You know, it really is just asking. I feel like, um, I, I, I totally, I feel that. And I understand that. And we have to be really mindful of that. We don't want to be curious just for the sake of getting our needs met, our curiosities met without acknowledging what this could be activating for someone else. And so I think it is having room for that. And I, it goes back to holding space of, of having that direct and honest communication of, of saying like, I'm really curious about this, but I also recognize that this might be really hard for you to talk about. Would you be comfortable? If not, that's okay. You know, if you are at some point, can you let me know? And it, it's, it is really just being compassionate, kind, and direct in the way that we talk with one another. Mm -hmm. Now, so I, first off, Sahaj, thank you so much for 
really kind of walking us through your own personal journey, um, but also giving us some very practical ways in which we can start this journey, or if we're already started, uh, where we can kind of get get some, you know, continue this journey and, and get a bit more support for it. I know everyone can find um, Brown Girl Therapy at, at Brown Girl Therapy on Instagram. Are there any other places where we can go to find you and more of your work? Um, I do have my personal Instagram and Twitter, which is at Sahaj Kohli. Um, so people can always follow there as well. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it so much. I know so many of us listening um, are probably going to be on Brown Girl Therapy late in the tonight, kind of saving our favorite posts. Um, so thank you for all the work you do. And, and I'm really excited to see how it grows. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for this incredible conversation and this incredible podcast and starting these conversations and allowing people in on so many important topics and people and experiences that are really not talked about enough. Thank you, Sahaj. Thank you so much. Amplify our important message by leaving a review or subscribing. Collaborate with us to encourage more people to shout for change. And be on the lookout. We have more episodes coming soon, and I can't wait to share them with you. From At The Table, I'm Dr. Lamb Thank you for joining us.